Section 27 of Self-Help. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Wayne Cook. Self-Help, with illustrations of Conduct and Perseverance by Samuel Smiles. Chapter 10, Money, Its Use and Abuse, Part 2. The late Sir Charles Napier, in taking leave of his command in India, did a bold and honest thing in publishing his strong protest, embodied in his last general order to the officers of the Indian army, against the fast life led by so many young officers in that service, involving them in ignominious obligations. Sir Charles strongly urged in that famous document what had almost been lost sight of that, quote, honesty is inseparable from the character of a thorough-bred gentleman, and that to drink unpaid-for champagne and unpaid-for beer, to ride unpaid-for horses, is to be a cheat and not a gentleman, end quote. Men who lived beyond their means and were summoned often by their own servants before courts of requests for debts contracted in extravagant living might be officers by virtue of their commissions, but they were not gentlemen. The habit of being constantly in debt, the commander-in-chief held, made men grow callous to the proper feelings of a gentleman. It was not enough that an officer should be able to fight. That any bulldog could do. But did he hold his word inviolate? Did he pay his debts? These were among the points of honor which, he insisted, illuminated the true gentleman's and soldier's career. As Bayard was of old, so would Sir Charles Napier have all British officers be. He knew them to be without fear, but he would also have them without reproach. There are, however, many gallant young fellows, both in India and at home, capable of mounting a breach on an emergency amidst belching fires and of performing the most desperate deeds of valor, who, nevertheless, cannot or will not exercise the moral courage necessary to enable them to resist a petty temptation presented to their senses. They cannot under their valiant no, or I can't afford it, to the invitations of pleasure and self-enjoyment. They are found ready to brave death rather than the ridicule of their companions. The young man, as he passes through life, advances through a long line of tempters ranged on either side of him, and the inevitable effect of yielding is degradation in a greater or a less degree. Contact with them tends insensibly to a draw away from him some portion of the divine electric element with which his nature is charged, and his only mode of resisting them is to utter and to act out his no manfully and resolutely. He must decide at once, not waiting to deliberate and balance reasons, for the youth, like the woman who deliberates, is lost. Many deliberate without deciding, but not to resolve is to resolve. A perfect knowledge of man is in the prayer, Lead us not into temptation. 
but temptation will come to try the young man's strength, and once yielded to, the power to resist grows weaker and weaker. Yield once, and a portion of virtue has gone. Resist manfully, and the first decision will give strength for life. Repeated, it will become a habit. It is in the outworks of the habits formed in early life that the real strength of the defense must lie, for it has been wisely ordained that the machinery of moral existence should be carried on principally through the medium of the habits, so as to save the wear and tear of the great principles within. It is good habits which insinuate themselves into the thousand inconsiderable acts of life that really constitute by far the greater parts of man's moral conduct. Hugh Miller has told how, by an act of youthful decision, he saved himself from one of the strong temptations so peculiar to a life of toil. When employed as a mason, it was usual for his fellow workmen to have an occasional treat of drink, and one day two glasses of whiskey fell to his share, which he swallowed. When he reached home, he found, on opening his favorite book, Bacon's Essays, that the letters danced before his eyes, and that he could no longer master the sense. Quote, the condition, he says, to which I had brought myself was, I felt, one of degradation. I had sunk by my own act for the time to a lower level of intelligence than that on which it was my privilege to be placed and though the state could have been no very favorable one for forming a resolution, I, in that hour, determined that I should never again sacrifice my capacity of intellectual enjoyment to a drinking usage, and with God's help I was enabled to hold by that determination." It is such decisions as this that often form the turning points of a man's life and furnish the foundations of his future character. And this rock, on which Hugh Miller might have been wrecked, if he had not at the right moment put forth his moral strength to strike away from it, is one that youth and manhood alike need to be constantly on their guard against. It is about one of the worst and most deadly, as well as extravagant, temptations which lie in the way of youth. Sir Walter Scott used to say that, Quote, of all vices, drinking is the most incompatible with greatness. Not only so, but it is incompatible with economy, decency, health, and honest living. When a youth cannot restrain, he must abstain. Dr. Johnson's case is the case of many. He said, referring to his own habits, Sir, I can abstain, but I can't be moderate. But to wrestle vigorously and successfully with any vicious habit, we must not merely be satisfied with contending on the low ground of worldly prudence, though that is of use, but take stand upon a higher moral elevation. Mechanical age, such as pledges, may be of service to some, but the great thing is to set up a high standard of thinking and acting and endeavor to strengthen and purify the principles as well as to reform the habits. For this purpose, a youth must study himself, watch his steps, and compare his thoughts and acts with his rule. The more knowledge of himself he gains, the more humble will he be, 
and perhaps the less confident in his own strength. But the discipline will always be found most valuable, which is acquired by resisting small present gratifications to secure a perspective greater and higher one. It is the noblest work in self-education, for, quote, real glory springs from the silent conquest of ourselves, and without that, the conqueror is not but the first slave. Many popular books have been written for the purpose of communicating to the public the grand secret of making money. But there is no secret whatever about it, as the proverbs of every nation abundantly testify. Take care of the pennies, and the pounds will take care of themselves. Diligence is the mother of good luck. No pains, no gains. No sweat, no sweet. Work, and thou shalt have. The world is his who has patience and industry. Better to go to bed supperless than rise in debt. Such are specimens of the proverbial philosophy embodying the hoarded experience of many generations as to the best means of thriving in the world. They were current in people's mouths long before books were invented, and like other popular proverbs, they were the first codes of popular morals. Moreover, they have stood the test of time, and the experience of every day still bears witness to their accuracy, force, and soundness. The Proverbs of Solomon are full of wisdom as to the force of industry and the use and abuse of money. He that is slothful in work is brother to him that is a great waster. Go to the ant, thou sluggard, consider her ways and to be wise. Poverty, says the preacher, shall come upon the idler, quote, as one that traveleth and want as an armed man. End quote. But of the industrious and upright, quote, the hand of the diligent maketh rich. The drunkard and the glutton shall come to poverty, and drowsiness shall clothe a man with rags. Seest thou a man diligent in his business, he shall stand before kings. End quote. But above all, it is better to get wisdom than gold, for wisdom is better than rubies, and all the things that may be desired are not to be compared to it. Simple industry and thrift will go far towards making any person of ordinary working faculty comparatively independent in his means. Even a working man may be so, provided he will carefully husband his resources and watch the little outlets of useless expenditure. A penny is a very small matter, yet the comfort of thousands of families depends upon their proper spending and saving of pennies. If a man allows the little pennies, the result of his hard work, to slip out of his fingers, some to the beer shop, some this way and some that, he will find that his life is little raised above one of mere animal drudgery. On the other hand, if he take care of the pennies, putting some weekly into a benefit society or an insurance fund, others into a savings bank, and confiding the rest to his wife to be carefully laid out with a view to the comfortable maintenance and education of his family, he will soon find that this attention to small matters will abundantly repay him in increasing means, growing comfort at home, and a mind comparatively free from fears as to the future. And if a working man have high ambition and possess richness and spirit, 
a kind of wealth which far transcends all mere worldly possessions, he may not only help himself, but be a profitable helper to others in his path through life. That this is no impossible thing even for a common laborer in a workshop may be illustrated by the remarkable career of Thomas Wright of Manchester, who not only attempted but succeeded in the reclamation of many criminals while working for weekly wages in a foundry. Accident first directed Thomas Wright's attention to the difficulty encountered by liberated convicts in returning to habits of honest industry. His mind was shortly possessed by the subject, and to remedy the evil became the purpose of his life. Though he worked from six in the morning till six at night, still there were leisure minutes that he could call his own, more especially on his Sundays, and these he employed in the service of convicted criminals, a class then far more neglected than they are now. But a few minutes a day, well employed, can affect a great deal, and it will scarcely be credited that in ten years this working man, by steadfastly holding to his purpose, succeeded in rescuing not fewer than three hundred felons from continuance in a life of villainy. He came to be regarded as the moral physician of the Manchester Old Bailey, and where the chaplain and all others had failed, Thomas Wright often succeeded. Children he thus restored, reformed to their parents, sons and daughters otherwise lost, to their homes and many a returned convict did he contrive to settle down to honest and industrious pursuits. The task was by no means easy. It required money, time, energy, prudence, and above all, character, and the confidence which character invariably inspires. The most remarkable circumstance was that Wright relieved many of these poor outcasts out of the comparatively small wages earned by him at foundry work and he did all this on an income which did not average during his working career one hundred pounds per annum and yet while he was able to bestow substantial aid on criminals to whom he owed no more than the service of kindness which every human being owes to another he also maintained his family in comfort and was by frugality and carefulness enabled to lay by a store of savings against his approaching old age Every week he apportioned his income with deliberate care, so much for the indispensable necessities of food and clothing, so much for the landlord, so much for the schoolmaster, so much for the poor and needy, and the lines of distribution were resolutely observed. By such means did this humble workman pursue his great work with the results we have so briefly described. Indeed, his career affords one of the most remarkable and striking illustrations of the force of purpose in a man, of the might of small means carefully and sedulously applied, and above all, of the power which an energetic and upright character invariably exercises upon the lives and conduct of others. There is no discredit but honor in every right walk of industry, whether it be tilling the ground, making tools, weaving fabrics, or selling the products behind a counter. A youth may handle a yardstick or measure a piece of ribbon, and there will be no discredit in doing so unless he allows his mind to have no higher range than the stick and the ribbon, to be as short as the one 
and as narrow as the other. Quote, Let not those blush who have, said Fuller, but those who have not a lawful calling. End quote. And Bishop Hall said, quote, Sweet is the destiny of all trades, whether of the brow or of the mind. End quote. Men who have raised themselves from a humble calling need not be ashamed, or rather ought to be proud of the difficulties they have surmounted. An American president, when asked what was his coat of arms, remembering that he had been a hewer of wood in his youth, replied, a pair of shirt-sleeves. A French doctor, once Tonton Flechet, Bishop of Nîmes, who had been a tallow-chandler in his youth, with the meanness of his origin, to which Flechier replied, If you had been born in the same condition that I was, you would still have been but a maker of candles. Nothing is more common than energy in money-making, quite independent of any higher object than its accumulation. A man who devotes himself to this pursuit, body and soul, can scarcely fail to become rich. Very little brains will do. Spend less than you earn, add guinea to guinea, scrape and save, and the pile of gold will gradually rise. Osterwald, the Parisian banker, began life a poor man. He was accustomed every evening to drink a pint of beer for supper at a tavern which he visited, during which he collected and pocketed all the corks that he could lay his hands on. In eight years he had collected as many corks as sold for eight louis d'ors. With that sum he laid the foundations of his fortune, gained mostly by stock-jobbing, leaving at his death some three million francs. John Foster has cited a striking illustration of what this kind of determination will do in money-making. A young man who ran through his patrimony, spending it in profligacy, was at length reduced to utter want and despair. He rushed out of his house, intending to put an end to his life, and stopped on arriving at an eminence overlooking what was once his estates. He sat down, ruminated for a time, and rose with the determination that he would recover them. He returned to the streets, saw a load of coals which had been shot out of a cart under the pavement before a house, offered to carry them in, and was employed. He thus earned a few pence, requested some meat and drink as a gratuity, which was given him, and the pennies were laid by. Pursuing this menial labor, he earned and saved more pennies, accumulated sufficient to enable him to purchase some cattle, the value of which he understood, and these he sold to advantage. He proceeded by degrees to undertake larger transactions, until at length he became rich. The result was that he more than recovered his possessions and died in venerate miser. When he was buried, mere earth went to earth. With a nobler spirit, the same determination might have enabled such a man to be a benefactor to others as well as to himself. But the life and its end, in this case, were alike sordid. To provide for others and for our own comfort and independence in old age is honorable and greatly to be commended. But to hoard for mere wealth's sake is a characteristic of the narrow-souled and the miserly. It is against the growth of this habit of inordinate saving that the wise man needs most carefully to guard himself, else what in youth was simple economy may in old age grow into avarice, and what was a duty in one case may become a vice in the other. 
it is the love of money, not money itself, which is the root of evil. A love which narrows and contracts the soul and closes it against generous life and action. Since Sir Walter Scott makes one of his characters declare that the penny siller slew more souls than the naked sword slew bodies. It is one of the defects of business too exclusively followed that it insensibly tends to a mechanism of character. The businessman gets into a rut and often does not look beyond it. If he lives for himself only, he becomes apt to regard other human beings only in so far as they minister to his ends. Take a leaf from such men's ledgers, and you have their life. Worldly success, measured by the accumulation of money, is no doubt a very dazzling thing, and all men are naturally more or less the admirers of worldly success. But though men of persevering, sharp, dexterous, and unscrupulous habits ever on the watch to push opportunities may and do get on in the world, yet it is quite possible that they may not possess the slightest elevation of character nor particle of real goodness. He who recognizes no higher logic than that of the shilling may become a very rich man and yet remain all the while an exceedingly poor creature for riches are no proof, whatever, of moral worth. Their glitter often serves only to draw attention to the worthlessness of their possessor as the light of the glowworm reveals the grub. The manner in which many allow themselves to be sacrificed to their love of wealth reminds one of the cupidity of the monkey, that caricature of our species. In Algiers, the cabley peasant attaches a gourd, well fixed, to a tree, and places within it some rice. The gourd has an opening merely sufficient to admit the monkey's paw. The creature comes to the tree by night, inserts his paw, and grasps his booty. He tries to draw it back, but it is clenched, and he has not the wisdom to unclench it. So there he stands until morning, when he is caught, looking as foolish as may be, though with the prize in his grasp. The moral of this story is capable of a very extensive application in life. The power of money is on the whole overestimated. The greatest things which have been done for the world have not been accomplished by rich men, nor by subscription lists, but by men generally of small pecuniary means. Christianity was propagated over half the world by men of the poorest class and the greatest thinkers, discoverers, inventors, and artists have been men of moderate wealth, many of them little raised above the condition of manual laborers in point of worldly circumstances, and it will always be so. Riches are oftener an impediment than a stimulus to action, and in many cases there are quite as much a misfortune as a blessing. The youth who inherits wealth is apt to have a life made too easy for him, and he soon grows sated with it, because he has nothing left to desire. Having no special object to struggle for, he finds time to hang heavy on his hands. He remains morally and spiritually asleep, and his position in society is often no higher than that of a polypus over which the tide floats. Quote, his only labor is to kill the time, 
and labored dire it is, and weary woe. Yet the rich man inspired by a right spirit will spurn idleness as unmanly, and if he bethink himself of the responsibilities which attach to the possession of wealth and property, he will feel even a higher call to work than men of humbler lot. This, however, must be admitted to be by no means the practice of life. The golden mean of Agur's perfect prayer is, perhaps, the best lot of all, did we but know it. Quote, Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with food convenient for me. The late Joseph Brotherton, M.P., left a fine motto to be recorded upon his monument in the Peel Park at Manchester, the declaration in his case being strictly true. Quote, my richness consisted not in the greatness of my possessions, but in the smallness of my wants. He rose from the humblest station, that of a factory boy, to an eminent position of usefulness by the simple exercise of homely honesty, industry, punctuality, and self-denial. Down to the close of his life, when not attending Parliament, he did duty as minister in a small chapel in Manchester to which he was attached and in all things he made it appear to those who knew him in private life that the glory he sought was not to be seen of men or to excite their praise, but to earn the consciousness of discharging the everyday duties of life down to the smallest and humblest of them in an honest, upright, truthful, and loving spirit. Respectability, in its best sense, is good. The respectable man is one worthy of regard, literally worth turning to look at. But the respectability that consists in merely keeping up appearances is not worth looking at in any sense. Far better and more respectable is the good poor man than the bad rich one. Better the humble silent man than the agreeable well-appointed rogue who keeps his gig. A well-balanced and well-stored mind, a life full of useful purpose, Whatever the position occupied in it may be, is of far greater importance than average worldly respectability. The highest object of life we take to be to form a manly character and to work out the best development possible of body and spirit, of mind, conscience, heart, and soul. This is the end. All else ought to be regarded but as the means. Accordingly, that is not the most successful life in which a man gets the most pleasure, the most money, the most power or place, honor or fame, but that in which a man gets the most manhood and performs the greatest amount of useful work and of human duty. Money is power after its sword, it is true, but intelligence, public spirit, and moral virtue are powers too, and far nobler ones. Quote, let others plead for pensions, wrote Lord Collingworth to a friend. I can be rich without money, by endeavoring to be superior to everything poor. I would have my services to my country unstained by any interested motive, and old Scott and I can go on in our cabbage garden without much greater expense than formerly. On another occasion he said, quote, I have motives for my conduct which I would not give in exchange for a hundred pensions." The making of a fortune may no doubt enable some people to enter society, as it is called, but to be esteemed there they must possess qualities of mind, 
manners, or heart, else they are merely rich people, nothing more. There are men in society now as rich as Croesus, who have no consideration extended towards them and elicit no respect. For why? They are but as money-bags. Their only power is in their till. The men of mark in society, the guides and rulers of opinion, the really successful and useful men, are not necessarily rich men, but men of sterling character, of disciplined experience, and of moral excellence. Even the poor man, like Thomas Wright, though he possesses but little of this world's goods, may, in the enjoyment of a cultivated nature, of opportunities used and not abused, of a life spent to the best of his means and ability, look down, without the slightest feeling of envy, upon the persons of mere worldly success, the man of money-bags and acres. End of section 27